you're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine, and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove, and I'm joined by three other guests this afternoon. We have Senior Pastor Charlie Bale, glad that he is with us here again. Uh, We have Elder Scott Melson, and uh, we also have Howard Quatch here with us again. And so really looking forward to this conversation on Mark chapter 8, which is uh, really a turning point here uh, halfway through uh, the book of Mark. So we'll get to that in a moment. But we did want to start with uh, just a conversation on um, sort of thinking about the struggles that we're all having right now during, I don't know, what is this month eight of quarantine, something like that, uh, with COVID going on. And, uh, you know, everybody I talk to right now, uh, whether they're married, whether they have kids, no kids, single, uh, no matter what phase of life, uh, everyone is fighting just discouragement right now, uh, not feeling connected to others, maybe not even being being able to put a finger on what exactly is troubling them, but just feeling that things are not right right now. Things are not okay. Um, scripture calls us to be an encouragement to one another, uh, even to encourage one another daily, right? We see that in places like First Thessalonians 4 and 5 and Hebrews chapter 3. And so just wanted to hear from each of you, maybe, um, I don't know, just sharing uh how can we be an encouragement as Christians? How can we be an encouragement to one another in the days and months ahead? Maybe thinking practically, what even thinking what would be an encouragement to you, you know, and then how can you be an encouragement to others? But how can we encourage our listeners <laughs> to encourage one another uh, as well? And so, Howard, I'm going to start uh, with you, just thinking through what does it look like to be an encouragement to one another in such a dark, weighty time? One of the things that uh, Sarah and I th- uh, thought about was how being sequestered at home, uh, there's a chance that no one else knows what's going on in your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's already pretty easy as it is. Um, but at this point, um, uh, attendance uh, to Sunday worship is, you know, it's not like, you can see other people attending things or not. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, I think for us to have those uh, regular, if not frequent, right, not necessarily day-to-day, but regular check-ins, like mm-hmm. text messages, um, and to show that, you know, you care about their well-being, I think that's a relatively low and easy um, effort, but yet... Um, can can go a long way over the long term. Yeah. Um, just the fact that someone else knows other than those who are under that roof. Yeah. It can be pretty, can be a lifeline if it gets to the point where it's really difficult. Um, so I, I would, I would start there. Yeah. 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 That's all good. I think it's, you know, just checking in with one another. Um, I think it can be a huge encouragement to initiate with someone who you know might be discouraged before they reach out to you, right? Before it gets so bad that they need to reach out and say, hey, I'm really struggling. But to kind of be preemptive and just kind of constantly encouragement uh, to one another. Uh, Scott, what do you think? Yeah, so uh, kind of much in line with what Howard said, but uh, trying to be more uh, cognizant of maybe reaching out via the phone just to my own family members um, that maybe I wouldn't normally think to to call as uh you know in normal times <laughs> uh, on a regular basis but um you know e- even my parents um you know so just want to be uh th- in my for at least myself just more thoughtful and doing that to be an encouragement to them because obviously everybody's kind of uh cooped up and you know each of you listening knows the different unique circumstances that uh, your loved ones are in and so you know, especially if they're lonely or, you know, not uh, around people, it could be a really huge, um, you know, comfort for them for, for someone to, to reach out to them. Uh, I know uh, in our unique situation, uh, we're in the apartments uh, right now. And so uh, everyone is uh, there, I think, more than normal. And so it's a good it's a good opportunity to kind of hang outside. Uh, there's a common area. And so we're actually able to see a bunch of people. Uh, kind of goes against social distancing, but people do kind of keep their distance. Uh, but it is 
it provides kind of an interesting opportunity to, to probably talk to people at a distance than otherwise would be when, when they're out and about uh, in normal circumstances. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a good time to be an encouragement to others and, and impact other people's lives. Yeah. Charlie. I think focusing on the positives that are of what God is doing. Um, I see God at work. Um, been greatly encouraged by um, seeing the, the folks that are leading with the Puritan study. And just, they're really good teachers, but you can tell they're really getting something out of this. Um, and it's neat to see the gospel expanding in hearts and lives. And um, I see God working in the midst of this, people reaching out to each other. And it, it's, it could be very easy to be discouraged. I also think that um, <clears throat> we should be just touching base with each other and um, sharing uh, encouragements of, I do think that though this is a dark time, I actually think that it's easier to share our faith right now than it's been in a long time. And it's pretty easy to steer conversations to the Lord. And I'm finding people are more receptive to talking. Uh, I had a wonderful opportunity this morning at the doctor and with the nurse practitioner. And we just had this long conversation and, and it, and it kind of went back and forth. And, um, anyway, it was just wonderful. It was a wonderful opportunity. And she said, I know the Lord sent you here today. And, um, it was just really encouraging to people are hungry right now and there's it's such a there's so much hostility that when we have a breath of fresh air and something fresh and and good to share people want to hear yeah that's good um one that i had is um for those who are married who are, have a spouse at home uh, i think encouragement can start at home uh, encouraging um, our husbands, our wives. Uh, and I think that that can be a cup that overflows out into the community, right? And so when we are pointing out tangible, you know, and like real concrete encouragement to one another, um, I think that can be really, really good, really important. And uh, I think it does overflow out into our community. Uh, I find myself uh, in recent weeks and months using the L word more. I love you, man. Um, <laughs> so really just trying to convey my deep affection for folks. And then the other thing I think that at least I hope it's an encouragement is when I do talk to someone, um, I'm really trying to commit more to praying for people. Not that I didn't pray for people before, but uh, you know, it was kind of rare for me to say, I'm going to commit to praying for you uh, because I knew that like, I don't, I might not, like, I'm not going to lie to you and say, I'm going to commit to praying for you, but it's kind of like I have more time now and more space. And I think it's like more important than ever. And so I'm like kind of routinely telling people that like, I'm committing to praying for you, which has then enabled me to, when I do talk to them, I'm reminded to ask them, Hey, how is this? Uh, how can I update my prayers for you or something like that? Right. And so I'm hopeful that uh, being more active in my prayers for others is an encouragement uh, to them. I'd also say, I, I think um, I need to get better at this, but I've been grateful um, receiving, you know, handwritten cards and notes from people who I think know um, that times are hard right now and they're writing notes and uh, you're trying to be encouraging. I think handwritten notes go a long way and I really want to get better at that, like more than just emails, but uh, actually sending cards to folks. So, um, Anyways, I think those are some tangible, tangible ways that we can be encouraging one another. And can I just piggyback on that yeah. for a second and say thank you because the number of people that have sent cards to to our family, to me and, and my wife, the loss of my dad, and I just didn't realize how I, I'm not good at sending out cards, but this really taught me that it, this is really a beautiful thing, and so many people have sent some really encouraging notes and i'm just very thankful for the cards yeah yeah well I, I feel like you know even having this conversation i'm looking around at you guys and we're all we're all just a little bit like 
I would say under, right? Like under, you know, it's just the tone in the air, right? It's just a little, and kind of everyone I talk to is just a little, you know, even for people who haven't been that deeply affected, I know are just, you know, it's a little bit darker right now, a little bit weightier. Uh, Howard, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm also uh, thinking about those maybe in more difficult circumstances yeah. in the home. Yeah. Uh, where because of the various layers of pressure or now maybe constraints yeah. have um, with that pressure, maybe certain things have been surfaced or bubbled up as a result of um, our times right now. And um, who knows, maybe it could be a season where the Lord has... <clears throat> You to actually uh, a, like attend to yourself or yeah. your spouse or your children, and um, and with that extra attention to uh, to care for those that um, and to maybe have those difficult conversations. Yeah, um, uh, yeah there isn't really uh, easy places to. Um, kind of soothe, you know, yourself or find comfort uh, in other places like Corner Bakery at Rio or something like that on a Saturday morning. Rather, yeah. could be an opportunity to prayerfully consider the difficult heart conversations. Yeah, yeah. And to give um, yourself grace, right, for that. Yeah, it just reminds me, you know, hearing that from you, Howard. Um. The new This Is Us season is on, so everyone listening should be expecting at least one This Is Us sermon illustration uh, in the next four <laughs> months because you all know I love that show. Um, but we finally got to watch uh, you know, the new episode last night, and um, it was an hour and a half long first episode special, and they worked in um, the pandemic and all of the racial unrest from the last few months. They worked that into the storyline. Um, and so the show is great. The writing's great, you know? And so for an hour and a half, and even I sat and watched and like watched our last six months unfold on the screen, as you saw how like social distancing and quarantine and like, um, unrest and, you know, all of that played into really just like tension Mm -hmm. among loved ones and bringing things to up to the surface that have gone unspoken for a lifetime. You know, and you're just like watching this unfold and you're like, how did they nail our life right? for the last six months? This is watching that unfold. And it just was sort of a reminder that like, yeah, everybody's feeling this way. You know, everybody is like nobody's going unscathed right now. And so just bringing that light and that hope and that encouragement to others, um, you know, it's important. So. Well, uh, hope that was good for those of you who are listening. Uh, let's go ahead and jump in now to Mark chapter eight. And uh, as we said, um, chapter eight is a significant turning point in the gospel of Mark. It's pretty much the halfway point. Um, Peter's confession uh, towards the end of chapter eight and verse 29 is sort of the hinge on the narrative here in Mark. And so uh, it's one of two big confessions, right, That of, of who Jesus is. You have Peter's confession in 829, and then you have the uh, centurion's confession in, uh, in chapter 15 towards the end of the narrative. And so uh, you kind of see this hinge here where prior to Peter's, uh, there's several changes start to begin to take place. So prior to Peter's confession, Jesus like is really addressing the crowds, and the disciples are sort of observing him address the crowds. And then that be- kind of begins to shift after after where he begins to more directly address and teach the disciples and we see this emphasis on teaching begin to take place because in the first half of the gospel Jesus says um, truly I say to you one time in the second half of the gospel he says it 12 times right like very direct to his disciples uh, in the first fa- in the first half he forbids people from announcing who he is uh, from chapter 9 and onward there's no longer any explicit prohibitions uh there's um after chapter nine there's no more mention of uh demons and exorcisms which was a big has been a big deal so far uh in the first half of the gospel we see this complete failure by the disciples to understand jesus but then after his confession they start to they're starting to get it a little bit even though they still struggle uh first half he's in gentile regions often second half he's kind of on the way to Jerusalem, right? Heading back into Jewish territory. So we just see this shift, right? Really hinging on 
Peter's confession. So we're kind of coming up to a big, you know, big turning point in the gospel of Mark. And so uh, let's jump into here uh, how we start off. So Mark chapter eight starts with uh, the feeding of the 4,000, which uh, we're going to contrast with with the feeding of the 5,000, which occurred in Mark chapter six. Um, So the feeding of the 4,000 is likely taking place uh, in Gentile territory once again. Uh, The context uh, in from chapter seven is he's near the Decapolis, right? So on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So what are some of the differences that you all see uh, between this feeding miracle in um, in chapter eight with the four thousand and the feeding miracle in chapter six with the five thousand? And what do you think is Mark's uh, purpose in including this feeding here? Uh, Charlie, we'll start with you this time. Um. Well, I just see some interesting uh, Gentile references here. Obviously, the other uh, feeding was uh, Jewish in nature. And I hadn't thought about this idea that here they are breaking bread with the disciples. And, and Decapolis is two Greek words for meaning ten cities. Um, and so they're in more of a, a Gentile region. And now they're the the Syrophoenician woman was talking about the crumbs, and you know even even the dogs can eat the crumbs that come from the table. Well, here's the crumbs, and they're more than just crumbs; it's an abundance. And Jesus is blessing this, but they're breaking bread. This is a picture of the church. It is Jews and Gentiles together, breaking bread together. It's a picture of uh, Jesus being the bread of life, and. Um, He's declared all foods clean in chapter 7, you remember. So it's all kind of this inclusio of, you know, he's going to go to Caesarea Philippi, and we'll get to that, another Gentile region. So he's really uh, ministering to both Jew and Gentiles here. Beautiful picture of the church. Yeah. Scott. Yeah, it's interesting in this, um, you know, kind of the, Feeding the four thousand, um, you know, in the first instance of the five thousand, you know, they they come ashore and they see the crowd uh, coming towards them, but here Jesus says that you know these individuals are, have been with him for three days. Yeah. So at what point during the three days did they run out of food? Yeah. Um, probably, you know, it would seem likely that nobody came necessarily prepared for a three day stay. Yeah. Uh, as they listened to the Lord Jesus Christ, so. Um, you know, one of the commentators mentioned, you know, they're, they're not here to be fed yeah, physically. And, you yeah. know, it's, it seems to be fairly evident that they've come because of, of the one who speaks of authority. Um, and so they're here wanting to hear the Lord speak. Uh, and so that's a, it's interesting, um, you know, as they're here three days, they're they're hanging on to the words of Christ, and uh, even even when there's a lack of physical comfort, uh, and you know, of course, we continue to see the Lord Jesus's care, uh, you know, for the physical needs of the people, uh, and not wanting them to see uh, to see them go without. Yeah, yeah. Um, all good thoughts. You know, there's a number of similarities between um, between the two accounts, which has led some. Uh, particular like critical scholars to want to say that maybe this is a uh, you know the same thing being said twice or some kind of scribal mistake you know wanting not to recognize two different you know events here and certainly there are a lot of similarities with the compassion on the crowds and there's the same question about loaves coming from the disciples and it's kind of like why wouldn't they I mean they saw it happen once why wouldn't they know it's going to happen again you know a lot of language the same but there's also a number of differences and some of you you've hit on some of this already um, you know, the number of loaves and fish is different. There's different words here used for fish, which is actually a Greek word for sardines, which I think is more of a like Greek um, uh, diet, right? Um, the number is different. Obviously, you had 5,000 men, which would not have included then the additional number of women and children, whereas here it's just a neuter. So it's just 4,000 people, which would include men, women, and children. So likely a smaller, much smaller group. Um you know, the Greek word for basket is different. So there's a lot of differences here. And certainly Jesus later in, in chapter eight uh, speaks of it as two different events. And so there seems to be, yeah, there seems to be where Jesus was doing it primarily with a Jewish audience in mind. 
And then we kind of have this uh, Gentile audience or maybe primarily Gentile and Greek audience here. So uh, Howard, what do you think then is the message? I mean, following on chapter seven, you had this Hierophanician woman, you had the man, the Gentile man who was healed. Now we have this Gentile you know, group. What do you think the message is here for who is Jesus for Gentiles? Right? Like what, what's the big message? Um, so with all these like check marks, right? Like cross, um, like the purity laws. And then now, um, uh, after chapter seven, he just starts to check off all these indications that this person from sent by God, Mm-hmm. You're not quite sure who he is, but God coming in and including reaching out to Gentiles. Uh, this, I think, Mark's communicating this Jesus of Nazareth is uh, a game changer, like something historically like new is happening. And in uh, I read in one commentary. Um, this is supposed to communicate that God's end time anointed person is here when Gentiles are now the nations, the ethnos are being included. Yeah. Even though it's like, even though it's, uh, you know, both like the way it happens though, I think is really important. The way it it's, uh, it's reaching out to individuals, it's compassion, it's, um, as from a Christian's perspective, it's very Jesus-like. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love how you know this this feeding here ends in the same way that, um, well, very similar, same same way that the one did in chapter six, which is they ate and they were satisfied. Right, both feedings say that, and there's just like this message is that Jesus satisfies Jew and Gentile alike right that he is the one who satisfies jew and gentile alike um, and that all who come uh, to him that truly come to him with their need will be fed and satisfied you know by christ and uh yeah just really um can i read an interesting quote here from sure. uh, this is from a commentary by uh rt france um shout out to mike nola he loves this guy and uh um he says, interesting, those are in a numerology, he says, it's been suggested here that there's a direct reference in the numbers and that the five, there's five books of the law and the 12, there's 12 tribes of Israel are clearly Jewish numbers, while four corners of the earth and seven for completeness points to a worldwide dimension to the Messiah's mission. Such, such suggestions are hard to prove or disprove and the question which, if any, of Mark's readers would have been in a position to pick up the symbolism is equally unanswerable. I just had, I never thought about that. And I'm not sure that the writer intended that, but I thought it was kind of, what do you yeah. think about that, Ben? About the numerology and yeah. stuff? Yeah. Uh, I mean, sometimes that's really explicit, you know, in scripture, like the calling of the 12 seems to be like really explicit that we're talking, you know, and in, there's enough in scripture to say 12 is significant. But here, I'm just not, I'm not going to say no, I'm, but I'm going to say I'm a skeptic that that's, that that level of numerology is in view. I don't know. What do you guys think? I want it to be true. Oh, yeah, you want <laughs> it to be true. You want it to be true. Uh, I, I think there was four and seven because there was actually four and seven. Right. You know, and, and 153 fish, you know, it yeah. was because there was 153 fish. Yeah. Yeah, well, this this chapter is just great. It keeps moving. So there's kind of, we're going to see bread, this idea of bread continuing. But first, we need to meet the yeast, right, of uh, the Pharisees. Uh, so the Pharisees come in um, verse 11, and uh, they, they want a sign, right? They ask for a sign. And uh, why won't Jesus give them one? It's, I mean, <laughs> wouldn't it be pretty simple to be like, all right, here, right? They come and they ask him for a sign. Why doesn't he give them one, Howard? I think that's a good question to ask because, uh, especially in light of the parable of the sower, uh, he, he the sower is shown to be so liberal. It's like, it don't like, oh yeah, there are different kinds of soils. I'm still gonna, I'm still gonna sow. And and uh, why does Jesus not uh, 
why does Jesus not give a sign here? Maybe sign and sowing seeds not quite like maybe there's no connection there. But I think it has to do with um, what kind of sign they ask for. It's specifically a sign from heaven, yeah. right? Um, and normally, signs are meant to vindicate, validate, verify the veracity or the, the truthfulness of some self-proclaimed prophet coming in from out of nowhere. Yeah, and that's definitely like an Old Testament thing that God gives people to let them know if someone starts talking on my behalf. Here's a test. Right. But this is uh, specifically a sign from heaven. And that phrase is meant to um, conjure up like, like final deliverance, right? Yeah. Heaven, the kingdom of God, heaven is coming. And what that means, especially for uh, like a nation that's been ruled by foreign nations and in the Jewish case, pagan right mm-hmm. <clears throat> nations that's supposed to conjure up uh, an idea of just not just deliverance but destruction like yeah. to f- to finally like get rid of in a very like satisfying way for people that have you know i'm saying satisfied in a like um you know like a vindictive kind mm-hmm. of sense um yeah so but uh as we've come to know that that's not quite what Jesus's mission is as we're getting towards the hinge. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus does miracles to, um, verify. Right. And we see that, um, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, I had an, <laughs> I had an example to my tongue and all of a sudden I'm blanking. Um, okay. So you see it when he, um, when the, when, uh, the man is lowered in through the roof, Right. And he says, you know, like, what's easier to tell a man your sins are forgiven uh, or to tell someone to get up and walk. But to, so that you know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins, I tell you, like, get up, pick up your bed and go home. Right. So there's like sign accompanying the truthfulness of his word. And at the same time, if you go back uh, Old Testament, looking at Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 13. Uh, it says that if someone comes and teaches contrary to Torah, but can do miracles, they're still a false prophet. Right. So like teaching and sign has to go hand in hand. Right. And you can't have like false teaching, but sign. And so I wonder if, you know, for Jesus, he's kind of thinking like, okay, but you don't believe the teaching. So what good is a sign going to do? Right. Because I do a sign for you, but it's not going to verify the teaching because you don't, you don't receive the teaching and you don't believe it. Um, So I wonder if that's, you know, something, something going on there. Um, Charlie, what do you think? Does Trevor Lawrence need to perform at the combine? You know, it's like he's already proven that he's a 70% passer and that he's the first pick in the draft, hands down. Of course, he doesn't need to perform at the combine. But these arrogant people will think, you need to come and show us a sign. Show us. Are you kidding? He just fed 4,000 people and 5,000 people. He's shown you that he's, what, what more of a sign do you need? And then he's, he'll, here's, heals a deaf man, the passage before this, and then right after that, he's going to, heal the blind man and clearly this is this wonderful idea of isaiah 35 where he says the eyes of the blind shall be open the ears of the deaf unstopped and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy um and the lame man will will leap like a deer like wait a minute jesus is doing all of these things so for him to like answer the question of like it's like if you guys can't see the as my kids would say avi this is so obvious that you're just blind that it's like arrogant that they're demanding a sign when it's right in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not the signs that will produce faith in them. It's the word of God. And, you know, as Pastor Bell, as you've been saying, he's, it's not like he's not doing anything in secret. There's been miracles surely that they've probably even seen or and at the very least heard about, um, as he's traveling throughout, uh, the region. Um, and, and so it's, you know, again, it's uh, whether he does a sign or not, that is not really what is necessary for these individuals. It's them to believe in the word that he's preaching to them. Um, you know, as we're told of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the sign's not what's going to do it. Raising somebody from the dead to come back and talk to the, uh, to the individuals are not going to be what produces faith. It's the, it's believing on the word of God as preached and he's not been 
you know, private about his message. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, rewinding a second. Who was the person that you mentioned? Lawrence? Okay. So that's <laughs> the quarterback for Clemson. So I was okay. just going to say to those who are listening that if you don't know that reference, you're in good company. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I was like, Thomas Lawrence, who are you talking about? Trevor. Trevor, Trevor Lawrence. See, there you go. What? Tony Lawrence? <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so just kind of closing out this thought. Yeah, I think everything that you all said is good. And You might need to get to know that name because the first pick of the draft will get him, and it could be either the Cowboys or the, or well, the Washington football team, the way... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the way get this to know season that name. is looking. Yeah, I haven't even paid attention after recent events in uh, NFL... In the, in the NFC least, um, I have not paid much attention. Uh, okay, uh, finishing out a thought here on the Pharisees. Uh, I definitely think everything here is true, and Jesus knows their heart, right? And so I think, especially we even see the antagonistic language uh, of their mentality here, right? Like the when they, you know, when it says they came, it's a, you know, the, it's really they came out against, right? It's kind of the sense of the language, like almost like military style. They came out, not just to question, but to argue, seeking to gain control of the conversation to test him, right? So this isn't like an open, really open-hearted where they're open to receiving, right? This is very much antagonistic uh, setting. So Jesus knows the heart, and I think he knows that de- demands from, for signs from people like the Pharisees are an attempt to gain by empirical means uh, what can only be gained by faith and trust, Right, an attempt to gain by empirical means what can only be gained by faith and trust, which kind of gets to what Scott was saying about believing on the word. You know, false prophets could deceive with signs and wonders, right? And we see that in the scriptures. But I think here, Jesus is forsaking signs uh, because to force empirical evidence on someone who's not open to believing is to force, you know, something that would make faith for them impossible, right? You're sort of like, it would maybe have the opposite effect of closing off the heart. And so, um, you know, one commentator used the analogy of uh, if a man hires a private eye to spy on his wife to prove her faithfulness. At that point, if like that's really your attitude towards your wife, no matter what proof a detective gives you that she's faithful, it's not going to it's not going to soften your heart and right get you to trust your wife because your attitude towards her is so skeptical and so negative. You know, um, it's a good it, illustration. Yeah. So another uh, another commentator said um, at the end here uh, that faith comes when one steps into the boat with Jesus and does not prefer to remain on the safety of the shore. And so uh, I think there's a trust, right? You have the Pharisees who stay, who don't get the sign, and then you have the disciples heading into the boat um, to uh, to continue to follow him. Uh, and so that brings us to. Uh, brings us to the yeast, right? Uh, this warning that Jesus gives because they're stepping into the boat with him, uh, but they're bringing something with them, right? Something that they're not aware of uh, is uh, uh, the uh, um, leaven of the Pharisees, right? So let's uh, talk about that. The leaven of the Pharisees. What is Jesus trying to get across to his disciples in verses 14 to 21? And what does their failure to understand uh, teach us about ourselves. Scott, what do you think? What's the warning Jesus is trying to give uh, to his disciples? Sure. So um, whether it be the main thing or not, one of the things is at least unbelief, the uh, you know the temptation for our unbelieving the word of God and needing to see something spectacular uh, as if we need God to verify his power, um, you know, through something extraordinary in our lives or else we can't really put our trust in him. So, um, yeah, this is kind of a comical episode here with the disciples in the boat, yeah. uh, forgetting to bring their lunchbox and <laughs> forgetting that Jesus just fed 4,000 people. Right. Um, and, and so he's talking about leaven and they're, they're wondering, well, we don't have any bread and what is he talking about? But you know, the sin of unbelief and distrust in the Lord and, um, you know, not not truly putting their faith in the words of Christ. Um, yeah. yeah, there's sort of an echo here um, that I hadn't seen before to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 12. Uh, I think it's verse two said, uh, 
Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but do not see and ears to hear, but do not hear. And you kind of have this like, okay, you've been with me. And like Jesus is living with these people, you know, days on end, weeks on end. And they have eyes to see, but do not see and ears to hear, but do not hear. Like just so, uh, so dense. Uh, what do you think, um, Howard or Charlie, what is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? What is, what is he, what's the... I'm going to let Howard. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a tough one, especially like not being a baker myself and not knowing how to really make bread. But I did learn that there is a difference between uh, yeast and leaven. Hmm. That yeast is like the you know, rising agent that we typically are more familiar with in our times. Rather, uh, like the leaven... Leaven was used in the ancient times um, to create, like they go through really um, like multi-step process to um, to like get the bread to do its thing. But in that process, there's like at every step, there's always a chance for that leaven to get like uh, get toxic or like get um, uh tainted in some some way hmm. and so once you start like once you put and i don't know what you, what you call it like massage the, the the rising agent into the bread it's going to like propagate itself yeah. um and at this point uh it's it's interesting to hear that there's both the when after just talking about the pharisees he, he bring jesus brings in herod right mm-hmm. that there is something there's like this toxic flaw about them and um, about their, like uh, Scott said, about their unbelief. And it's like a self-reliance or no need for me kind of mentality. I, what I notice in reading this, I mean, I've been saying all along, I've been looking really hard at the questions and then looking at the answers. And this is like a machine gun of questions. Jesus actually asked eight questions right here. And so if you're, as a parent, if you give your children like eight questions, I mean, it starts at question one is verse 17. You know, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Question one. Do you not perceive or, you know, understand? Question two. Are your hearts hardened? Three. Like, the reason you don't understand is a heart issue. And and then he just keeps going with this. Boom, 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 boom. And then the last question is, do you not yet understand? And so it's really a pretty big rebuke to the uh to his disciples that mm-hmm. how can you t- have this conversation about your lunchbox i like the way you put that like are you kidding like don't you see who i am mm-hmm. that's kind of like uh you when you mention the, the pharisees and herod together is you know the pharisees have had uh many opportunities probably that they heard Christ maybe in person and then reports of his word and his actions. And Herod, we're told, loved to hear Mm. (laughs) and be reasoned with about the gospel, and yet he remained in unbelief. And Mm -hmm. so we're seeing people being pelted uh, with the word of God and the truth, and yet they're still just digging in their heels and remaining in unbelief. And so here we have the disciples yeah. They have the closest proximity to, to the Lord right. <laughs> than anyone else. And they keep hearing and they keep seeing. And yet they continue to struggle. Yeah. Uh, they continue to struggle with unbelief and uh, concerned about, you know, what are we doing for our snack on the ride and not realizing <laughs> that we have again, you know, the Lord God is, is, in, is in the boat. Yeah. Um, and he can do so much more than just provide bread, but he's, yeah. you know. Yeah, Scott, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, I, with uh, the unbelief, because, you know, I cross-reference this with where Matthew and Luke talk about this, and Matthew explicitly identifies the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees as teaching, as the, as the Pharisees' teaching. Luke identifies it as their hypocrisy, uh, but Mark doesn't say exactly what it is, right? He leaves it open. And what do we know in the narrative so far? What do what does Herod and the Pharisees have in common? Right, unbelief. Right, they don't believe. Um, 
And so this idea and getting back to um, Howard, what you were saying, this uh, rising agent is, uh, I don't know if this is the right term, but is fermenting mm-hmm. in the disciples and they don't know it, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's in them, it's contaminated, it's become toxic and they don't know it. And perhaps what's even worse, if we apply kind of the rest of the Bible's teaching on this, is that they may have it even worse than the Pharisees or Herod does, right? Because they're the ones who are with Jesus, mm-hmm. right? They are the ones who are with Jesus, may, which may lead them to lead them to presume that they are also with him in purpose and mission, but nothing could be further from the truth, right? Just because they are close to him does not mean that they are with him at a deeper purpose and mission level. And then I was also reminded, you know, in the Bible, like who really, uh, who is hard hearts? Who is that really a problem for, right? Is it for the outsiders or for the insiders? Often it's the insiders who have the problem with hard hearts. It's the religious and moral people, right? Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter two, that because of your hard heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself, right? Who's he still talking to in Romans two, right? It's the Jewish, like moral religious people. And so I think it's a real warning for Christians, right? That proximity to Jesus, which I guess we could maybe say is like proximity to religious activity and, you know, being here and quote unquote being near Jesus does not exempt us from the leaven of a hard heart and unbelief. In fact, we probably need to be aware of that more than maybe outsiders would. And I, I suspect the second half of the gospel will show how Jesus is going to like undo that fermenting process. Yeah. How is that like, I don't know, I guess the, just to summarize that, it's like it's, you can be with Jesus a little longer and that fermentation is going to, uh, Jesus is going to do something about it. And, and it's encouraging the, you know, a gentle and lowly Jesus that yeah. we've, uh, that works like I think Ben, um, one of the one of the one of the leaven, the kind of leaven I'm trying to get rid of, maybe similar to yours, what you mentioned on a previous episode, is the the stoic Jesus mm-hmm. presented in the Gospels, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that this rebuke, um, you know, reading it, you know, the first few times. It, it can be kind of tough if when I put myself in the position of the of the disciples. Well, it's like Jesus, what have you set me up with so far? Right? I've like we've witnessed all these powerful, authoritative acts, mm-hmm. right? And yet you're still saying like we don't get it. But what have you been like? It feels like I've been led to believe these things but yet I'm being rebuked, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that might be simplistic, but up, but it feels like it, up to this point in the story, that's like the setup. Um, and yet rebuke doesn't mean rejection. We mm-hmm. still have 16 more chapters of what that patient rabbi, prophet, miracle worker. Here. Yeah, from here, from here. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, this this um, this passage really just prompted me. Um, this is really more of a rhetorical question. Uh, don't have time to get into it right now, but rhetorical question, maybe for those listening and even for us here, is um, what does a hard heart versus a soft heart look like? And maybe even especially in my life, really just examining where am I prone to hard heartedness over soft heartedness. Uh, right. And so symptoms for me, I think of hard heartedness are cynicism, you know, would be an example for me that I think is really a symptom of how my hard heart can expose itself. And, you know, so really just examine, I think this is a point for us to really ask that question of ourselves, um, where, how do I have a hard heart? Um, but, uh, let's keep going here. Um, because we're still so much good, uh, so much good here in chapter eight, uh, but there's this interesting healing, another another healing uh, episode in verses 22 to 26, where um, like chapter seven, Jesus is using his spit, right? But unlike the previous one, um, it occurs in two stages, right? So he does it once 
and the man's eyes are partially opened, you know, and he can see people that look like trees. And then there's the second laying on of hands and then he's uh, gets his full sight back. And so uh, why do you think so? So now in the narrative we have, um, you know, I've we been have waiting for 15 years for somebody to answer this question. <laughs> I, <I'm... laughs> what, why, why does, what's the point of Mark putting this healing account here between the Pharisees and the disciples and Peter's confession? Mm-hmm. Right. So then we have this healing account here. Why do you, why do you think Mark does that? Profession that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah with words from your mouth, stage one healing. But it's to be a true disciple of Christ is not merely profession, Hmm. but obedience. Hmm. And specifically in this story, obeying him by following him no matter where he goes. Yeah. That's a good thought. Scott, you have any? So just some thoughts that come to my mind. That could be a scary thing. Um, <laughs> you know, Jesus uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John says that, um, you know, talking about his father and how we come to know the father, uh, he says, you know, all the father who will come to me, you know, that the father gives me will come to me. Uh, and, he, and he says, you know, I have to reveal the father to you or else that won't happen. And, you know, as we've been talking about unbelief and just seeing the, uh, the signs and hearing the words of Christ and, uh, the Pharisees have animosity towards Christ and the disciples are still trying to trying to understand everything about this individual in front of them. And then we see the Lord restore this individual sight right before the confession and, uh, so some thoughts come to mind is, you know, we're, we're seeing the Lord give sight. Mm-hmm. He's showing the father to somebody here. And that's what the disciples and us all, we need Christ to open our eyes and to reveal who the father is and to show him to us. Uh, and, and so uh, it is interesting that this comes after the Pharisees are rebuked in the boat uh, and, the, and the skirmish with the, the Pharisees, you know, ahead of well, who do you say that I am? Uh, and then, of course, Peter's confession. Um, it's only Christ that can give eyes to see and ears to hear. Yeah. Yeah, that's all good. I really I really think this is actually a pretty rich um, uh, episode to, to making what the point come across here. And I, I wonder if it's even richer than sometimes we give thought to because... Um, all of this, you know, so on the one hand, I think there's a whole lot of application and meaning here for that uh, Jesus is the one who gives sight. Right? There's no earthly means by which uh, we come to faith and, you know, we need him to restore our spiritual blindness. On the other hand, that it occurs in two stages. I just wonder if it doesn't have something to do with how Mark has uh, kind of juxtaposes Peter's confession and the centurion's confession. Right. Because Peter is about to confess like right after this, he's about to confess who Jesus is, right? But he only gets it partially correct. He understands that Jesus is the Christ, but doesn't understand that he must suffer and must die. Mm. And no sooner does Jesus say that he must suffer and die, then Peter denies it, and then there's the whole get behind me Satan, right? So you have that as the first confession, but the second confession in Mark is the centurion who confesses that he is the Christ, the Son of God, after the suffering. Right. And so it's almost like the second stage where he gets not only that he's the son of God, but the son of God who had to suffer. Right. For sinners. And I just wonder if this is a like image of that two part that it's not just that you confess that he's the son of God, but that, you know, he's the son of God, that he's the Christ who suffered and died for sinners. Right. It's a fullness of the uh, sight of who of who Christ is that Peter's only going to get partially at this point. I mean, it does seem like he's using miracles to communicate a lesson. So this man seeing men like trees walking, what an interesting imagery, um, does seem like he's getting at the disciples, understand in part that they're going to again and again stumble over this idea of what they're being called to. And so the next healing 
or the next blind is blind blind man Bartimaeus. Some people think that's kind of the hinge of the book, is that when he sees, it's like that's like the bing, like okay, they're finally, um, and it's right after the disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And so once again, they're not getting it, but this blind man has gotten it. Um, so both of these blind uh, healings are right in the midst of the disciples in their still blindness of not fully understanding the implications of Jesus being Lord and his lordship over them. Yeah. I wonder if uh, this uh, Jesus healing a blind man is related to the previous I'm sorry, if the healing of the blind man is related to the previous healing back in chapter seven, um, where Jesus heals a deaf man. Mm-hmm. What are you getting at? What, what, what the people need is both eyes to hear and ears to, I'm sorry, ears to hear and eyes to see. And uh, at this point, that's like Jesus has done those things for these two two different individuals uh not quite sure how they're related uh, but just kind of noticed that that kind of completes the healing from a physical perspective yeah yeah i think certainly i mean there's so much powerful potential imagery here and even um yeah, it could be like all of this right i mean i think there's so much even just just in mark that this invokes uh, that, you know, there's absolutely no reason to say that like Jesus messed it up the first time, right? <laughs> Which, you know, I think some people might look at this and be like, oh, well, see, Jesus is uh, maybe his power, you know, this would emphasize maybe more that he's not God because he got it wrong the first time or something. But I think clearly that's not what's at play here. There's so much that you could unpack just from this one example in light of the book of Mark um, that uh, it, it fits. Right, it fits really well. We're not teaching a two-stage conversion. Correct. Getting the spirit later, just to clarify. Correct. That's also correct. <laughs> um, well, we only have about uh, maybe ten minutes left, and so I'd like to get through, um, you know, Peter's confession here and what we see Jesus teaching after that. So, just I'm going to real quick touch on Peter's confession. If anybody wants to add to that, uh, they can. But I really want to get into maybe talking a little bit more about what he says about you know losing our life and saving our life. Maybe to end today so you know peter's confession it's it's coming here uh in verse 20 mm, verse 29 uh, yeah verse 29 and uh but then we immediately see that it's incomplete and it's incomplete because he i think still has this perception of messiah as conquering victorious you know but as soon as jesus says that he must suffer. And it says in verses 31 and following, he says he taught this to them plainly, that he must suffer, that Jesus protests this and says, by no means, right? And so Peter probably is representative of the disciples, probably representative of many Jewish believers at the time, did not understand the link between the Messiah of the Old Testament and the suffering servant of the Old Testament, right? And that Jesus comes uh, as both. And that, I think, was a difficult uh, picture for them to put together, right? They couldn't see how you could be both. But Jesus comes, you know, you know, in his first coming, he comes not as warrior, but as servant, uh, not as one who will inflict suffering, uh, but who will receive suffering, right? Not as one who uh, will have a, uh, you know, pow- uh, victory and success and power, but who will face rejection, suffering, and death right, as the suffering servant. And um, uh, that was obviously something that Peter could not at the time um, reconcile, right? So his confession was true, but obviously it was uh, incomplete. And so uh, Jesus is, you know, making that making that plain uh, to us. Anyone have anything to add on that before we keep going here to talk about um, this losing life and saving life? Because I think that sort of builds on Peter, not under, you know, Peter wants victory. And, um, I have mentioned a couple times this show, uh, the chosen, right. Which, um, portrays Jesus's disciples. And in the episode where, um, I think it's, it's right before, uh, he, uh, heals Peter's mother-in-law, 
um, people are starting to crowd around the house and it shows Peter getting anxious and like ready to fight in case uh, people come to get Jesus, right? Because he's like the Messiah, like we're here to like build an army, not to help all these people. So uh, like I'm ready to fight if, and I got to back way out if we need to get out of here quick, right? And one of the other disciples says to him like, just let's just wait and see what he does, hmm. you know? But I, I think they kind of captured that like he was ready to go because hmm. he thought that was the mission, right? It was like, why are we here with all these people? Um, so anyways, uh, Howard, I see you leaning in. Yeah, just, that. just affirming your brother. <laughs> okay. Um, so anyway, so Jesus keeps going here and kind of impresses this in after after uh, Peter's confession. And then, you know, there's get behind me, Satan, clearly showing that this unbelief uh, is of you know, right, is of the devil and not of, of God. And then he uh, calls the crowd to him with his disciples. And he says to him, says to them, if anyone will come up after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Um, what is Jesus making plain to his followers here? And how do we see kind of, you know, maybe verses 34 and 36 illuminating verse 35, which is where he says, you know, whoever um, wants to save his life must lose it lose it, and, and so on. So um, anyone of you want to jump in? on that what's jesus making plain here for us i guess i'll jump in <laughs> so this is a um an uncomfortable passage uh for me <laughs> and hopefully for all of us yeah. if we're reading it uh correctly um you know christ is you know he says a a, a few lines down he says for um I can't, I found my, lost my place. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man be ashamed when, you know, he comes in the glory. Um, and so Christ is being, is, is calling us to I, identify with him uh, and, and to, you know, obey his words. Uh, and so when Christ comes and calls us to life, you know, we're, we're called to holiness, to, uh, a proclamation of the glory of of God <laughs> and of His Son, uh, the Messiah, and so that cuts against the grain of of this world and the love of this world and the ease of this world. And uh, not to say that the Lord doesn't bless His people with many material blessings, because He does. But He promises us that you know He who will live a holy life is going to find a lot of trouble, and so the absence of a lot of trouble could potentially mean the absence of a holy life. Mm -hmm. And so this is calling us to examine ourselves, uh, I think daily, you know, um, have we, are we dying to ourselves and our wants? Uh, are we dying to this world? Uh, as he says, you know, whoever would seek to save his life is going to lose it. So he's calling us to a life of death mm -hmm. basically in this world. Uh, to become less and less attached to the things of this world and the love and the and the reliance on the comforts into more relying on him and and you know basically following our savior wherever he goes yeah. um, we're basically and in one sense you know in every moment we have to determine are we going to die or live yeah. um, and and so obviously I think it, anyone listening can can think of all these it's not just with, you know, do we witness to this person? Uh, it, it could be, you know, do I uh, do I take this particular opportunity? Uh, do I accept this gift? Uh, do I engage in this friendship? It can be innumerable different things. Am I dying or am I trying to gain and preserve my life? Yeah. Charlie? You preached on this Sunday, Ben, and did a good job of laying out the implications of the cost of uh, so I just give a shout out if you didn't listen to the message Sunday, Ben, the whole message was basically this emphasis. I think we all like when Jesus is moonlight, so to speak, and, and we're the earth and this little moon is revolving around us and it provides some nice uh, seasons for us and everything's kind of smooth. But then we discover that, wait a minute, he's really the sun and we're to revolve around him. And there's a totally different way of looking at uh, these two different orbital things and thinking, oh, this is good. Jesus revolves around me. And then 
the implications of lordship here is no, we revolve around him. And it's all about him, and he has to become greater, and we have to become less. Yeah. Howard? I came across a video on uh, YouTube. Matthew McConaughey wrote a <laughs> memoir. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. I will write, I will write. Um, and uh, he said something. Um, that, I'm dying uh, to hear this. He doesn't he said say a whole lot. He doesn't say a whole lot. Yeah. He said something uh, about like after his dad died, uh, he wrote something He wrote something down somewhere um, that has left an impression on him. It, he, it said, be less impressed and be more involved. Mm. So with the vision or the picture of the Son of Man, especially coming from Daniel chapter 7, um, the Son of Man in verse 38, who will uh, come in glory, right? Yeah. The, the Son of Man who showed, demonstrates so much power over and authority over the demons, healing, feeding people, right? Now, now is the time, disciples, for you to be less impressed and be more involved. Mm. Now you will be involved uh, more deeply on what I've come to do. Mm. And I think that's a good um, setup for, um, I'm not saying Matthew McConaughey is a good setup, but yeah. but this turning point or this intensification of discipleship will really show us what it means to be with the servant who suffers, the king who suffers. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, there was a really good article that came out in the Atlantic this last week, and uh, I think it was titled something like, Are We Making a Bad Choices for Our Happiness or something like that? I can't remember the exact title. Um, but it's by Arthur Brooks, and uh, basically he's, he's combining a lot of, it's not going to be new information to many of you who have kind of read similar things about happiness in our culture and how, you know, technology affects us and things like that. But it's just well said and it's kind of repackaged in a short article. But at the end, he has a couple of really good ways of saying things where he says, you know, um, uh, anytime that we uh, choose things over people, mm. we're making a bad trade. And he says, uh, we are supposed to love people and use things but instead we've become conditioned to love things and use people. And that's, you know, so we're making a bad trade whenever we choose things over people. And I think there's something, a kind of similar lesson here on a much deeper level for Jesus. You know, anytime we choose the world uh, over Jesus, we're making a bad trade. Anytime we choose um, uh, our own comforts over hard obedience to whatever Jesus is calling us to, and that might be serving someone else or, you know, whatever the case might be, uh, it's a bad trade, right? Because what what can you possibly gain that's worth your soul, right? What can you possibly gain from this world that's worth your soul? Um, uh, the uh, uh, There's a good book on this, uh, you know, The Cruciform Life by... Um, uh, Rankin Wilborn and Brian Greger called The Cross Before Me. And uh, they say, I think it's towards the beginning of the book, they say, the cross is God's wisdom for human flourishing. Not only is the cross the instrument of our salvation, it also sets a pattern for the whole art of living. The cross is more than an ethic and a way of doing things. It sets up a whole new way of being fueled by a whole new way of seeing. Everything must now be interpreted in light of the cross. They go on and say, the cross is God's strange way. It shows us we have to lose the life we've always wanted, the life that we've always thought we needed in order to find the life that we've always wanted. I thought that was well-worded. Um, we have to lose the life we've thought we always needed in order to find the life we've always wanted. And just um, to, just to, in light of the election this coming yeah. week, this pronouncement was made... I can't made believe it's this week. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, by the time people listen to this... It will have come out. It will have, have, yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, so, um, but this confession is made intentionally at Caesarea Philippi, mm -hmm. and this was the uh, Roman headquarters. You know, this was uh, Caesar is Lordville, and mm. um, 
Jesus purposely took them there to show them that I am Lord over the kings of the nations. And it's a good reminder for us because a lot of people are going to be disappointed with the outcome. And, you know, you were asking one of the questions at the beginning of that started this podcast was, how are we kind of encouraging others? How are we, I'll tell you, going up to Antietam and walking the battlefield and standing right where the bloodiest spot in all of America of the most bloodshed in one day mm. is right there in Antietam. And it became a pool of blood. And these 20-some-year-olds are just killing each other and thinking, well, you guys, we, we're we worried about like small stuff. I mean, this is Caesar is Lord. We could be fighting in the Civil War, like, you know, hand me a musket and, you know, like we're shooting each other from 20 yards away. Like our lives are like, we really have perspective wise, we've got it pretty good. And yeah. so, yeah, we, we're going to get through this season. We're going to get through this election. Like, let's keep the big picture before us. Jesus is Lord, yeah. and he's Lord over all the nations and all the kings and all the kingdoms, whether it's Biden or Trump, whoever. Yeah. Jesus is Lord. It's a good word. And uh, totally forgot this would be coming out on Wednesday morning. But uh, if you're listening to this, just, uh, yeah, we hope this was an encouragement to you. Uh, know that we love you and that we're for you. And uh, and it's going to be know. two more weeks before you know who won. <laughs> yeah, well, um, let's, uh, let's meditate on these words um, from this chapter and uh, be sober-minded and, um, you know, really commit ourselves to the Lord during this season and uh, what that path of the cross Amen. looks like. Um, all right. Well, <laughs> I didn't know if Howard was going to jump in. Okay. But uh, anyways, uh, we love you all. Uh, hope that you enjoyed this episode of Mark chapter eight, and uh, we'll be back again next week. So take care, everybody.